Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Chieflain, what do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, I'm back from the dead after riding 160 miles directly into a 21-plus mile-an-hour wind. Any progress in our iTunes ranking while I was gone? (laughs) I think maybe there's a direct link between your perilous journey and our rise and that i think it was sort of like when you see spikes in album sales when an artist dies yeah everybody was pretty sure that you weren't coming back either that or that it's just speculation uh that paul bloom or sam harris would be the next co-host and so like (laughs) as soon as they realize that no another question did anything in the philosophy world happen while i was gone (laughs) <laughs> um, well, the Searle thing happened before you left, and then you came back to like uh, uh, the controversy of a shitstorm. A shitstorm, I guess. And uh, I guess if it's leaking this much into my feed, it must be just like you know, uh, philosophers. Yeah, I mean, like this is crazy. being covered in like you know, popular magazines, uh, New York Magazine, The Atlantic. I think had something on it. Right. Of course, the like, we- National Review. They're like predators for anything that, you know, might indicate like that free speech is being stifled or in the name of social justice. So so this has been <laughs> right. just beautiful for them. This is like ding, 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 jackpot. So what we're talking about is the, the Tuval uh, um, article that was published in Hypatia. It was an article that I, this deserves maybe an episode on its own, but I don't think we're going to talk about the content of this. But the, the argument was essentially like, hey, look, like if if you can be transgendered, why not be why not be transracial? Bur- why not accept people uh, uh, who, yeah. who are transracial? Like when what are the what are the real differences? Yeah. Right. Like what what like the burden is on you to show me that one is different than the other. Well, we'll talk about you, this because this yeah. actually inspired our topic for today. And it was even more specifically inspired by a tweet by Jay Von Bavel, a friend of yours, let me guess. Let me just take a wild guess. <laughs> I know, Jay. <laughs> you know, I, I hope that he's a friend that I don't talk to that often. Let's just say that, Jay Van Bavel. <laughs> he, Van Bavel, is that how you pronounce it? I think, but if it's not, then you know I'm not his friend. That's like an easy <laughs> list is, test. We're about to find out. So um, he tweeted out, psychologists quote our field is a hot mess philosophers hold my beer 
Now, I'm not a big fan of the whole hold my beer thing. Oh, yeah, you're too hipster for that. I also, there's a kind of smugness to it that I don't like. <laughs> you know? Uh, there's a kind of social media smugness about it. We'll let that pass. <laughs> I'm sure he'll be grateful to hear because we decided to make that the main topic of our episode today. Which of our fields, philosophy or psychology, is more fucked? Just more fucked. I'd like to say more more made love to. More. <laughs> more cuddled with. <laughs> you suggested that we do this based on Jay's tweet. And I at first was perplexed because... I feel like this is going to be harder for you than for me because you this philosophy so much more that I think I said to you off the air that this could just be a clip show of you talking shit about <laughs> philosophy and, and it might actually make the case. Well, we should so, say that the, the idea for the show is that I'm going to defend philosophy and say that psychology is more fucked and you right. vice versa. But you're right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is a little strange given that I have spent, I don't know, a good... A, percentage it's like the raison d'etre of like this like show and and yet but this is how fucked psychology is i still think philosophy might be less fucked (laughs) i'm not saying philosophy isn't fucked to some degree it's just not as fucked and the question is right who is more fucked yeah it's really about like in the race of fuckery who's like pushing through the ribbon right by stretching their neck the most at the end degrees of fuckery this isn't a like (laughs) i think people will try to oversimplify this as a dichotomy (laughs) between fucked and not fucked but that's exactly the kind of dichotomy that we should i'd like to appeal to the law of excluded middles in this uh, (laughs) oh so we should say back to our itunes ranking we shot up, and now this has only been happening for about 24 hours, but we shot up to number So by one. the time you hear this, we'll be back at like number 842 yeah, exactly. or whatever. Yeah. This is, we're, we're going to release this in a little, a little under a week, I guess. But And I don't know what it's from, although we had a really nice mention on a podcast with um, Josh Zepps. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it was clearly tied to his show. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. I, I just don't. So we shot up to number one on philosophy. So just leapfrogged, partially examined life. They felt our they felt our breeze. Yeah. They, they, They're cussing out their like inside person at iTunes. Like, the fuck do I pay you for? <laughs> like one of those studio like guys from studio heads from like the 40s. <laughs> and then just started shooting up in like regular rankings like society and culture. There, there was a period this morning, not that I've checked, but there was a period this morning where we were like three spots ahead of WTF with Mark Marin, three spots behind Bill Burr. Like these are like podcasting giants. Bill Simmons. This is like this is just clearly evidence of the non-diagnosticity of iTunes. Of iTunes, exactly. So we don't know why this is happening. Um, but no, I feel I feel like we give credit to We the People Live. Yeah. Like that. I think yeah, that's yeah. why, right? Absolutely. It's, it's unclear what the mechanism is, but and I gotta say, um, and Sam Harris was the guest. And Sam Harris. So Sam and and Josh had a really nice discussion. They said really nice things about us, and we really appreciate it. And and uh, I think that it is actually like a really. Um, I'm going to start listening bit to the backlog of, of We the People Live. I'll put a link. Yeah, that was that was fun. I think both of us took a few screenshots 
just because <laughs> we don't expect this to last. We definitely do not <laughs> yeah. expect this to last. All right, do we have any other business to get out of the way, or should we just dive right in? I think we should just dive. So at the outset, I, I'm going to say a few things. So even though this uh, this discussion was sparked by the controversy about the Tuvel article and Rachel Dolezal and in part by all the sexual harassment problems that are sort of known but only sort of really emerging in the last few years— I think that's just that's just too easy. Like if if we want to condemn a field for the poor behavior of of its members, then it really is a matter of doing research on any given field and we'll probably find stuff like that. Now, there are things that are more substantive about the the Tuvel article that that are relevant. I, I feel like we need to at least say what happened with Hypatia that the a group mm, of the mm-hmm. associate editors issued a statement apologizing for publishing this piece by the feminist philosopher Rebecca Tuvel saying that it was harmful, saying that it it didn't meet their publication standards. I'm sure you'll get into their reasoning for this, but the this was the thing that sparked the controversy is that they that it went through peer review it was published, it went through the editorial process, and then because of this angry outcry against it, they f- were successfully pressured into uh, making this statement, sort of disavowing the article right. and hanging Rebecca Tuvel out to dry. Right, right. And and by, I think, pretty reasonable standards, she met, um, she met the criteria for good scholarship in that field, but she was accused not of making bad arguments, but of uh, using certain kinds of languages and examples that people found harmful and offensive. And so, so that, so, so I guess I should say it's not the, the being pissed off at each other part that, uh, that will be what I think diagnostic of the field, um, but rather what things you are allowed to get pissed off by that I think is more diagnostic of the deep seated problems. Everybody knows that I'm a huge fan of philosophy, probably more than you. That that Definitely. let's set that let's set that that aside. I think there's there's value and and I like doing it. But maybe there's a reason I'm a psychologist and not a philosopher. And if if that world um, in which I was uh, completely anti philosophy existed, this would be what I would say. <laughs> You're going into possible worlds. I'm going into possible worlds. There's a fundamental problem with philosophy that seems, as time goes by, to me to be inescapably problematic. And that is that there is little agreement about what the criteria for truth is. In a field that is utterly concerned with discovering what true things are through the process of reasoning and and discourse and and making distinctions and pointing to similarities it is it's it's pretty depressing that thousands of years have gone by and the best answer you usually get from philosophers when you ask like how come we haven't solved any of these problems is they say well it's cuz we're in the business of refining the questions but the business of refining the questions is not what it's sold as. It's certainly not what it's sold as to students. It's certainly not what most people think. It seems like a a way in which philosophers have settled on what is the obvious flaw that 
In fact, nobody can really agree about what the answers to these questions would even be. Or how to evaluate the answers. Or how to evaluate the, the truth value of those answers. And, and, you know, the biggest push to try to find objective standards of truth with, with formal logic and language were sort of abandoned, right, in, in mid-century philosophers. Thanks, Gödel. Uh, and so now what you have is sort of an, an ever-focused set of questions that um, the work, the progress that seems to be made is just by making more and more focused questions that seem to lose relevance. Um, and, and since they don't yield answers, they yield sort of more objections and more questions. It's unclear what progress is being made, which takes me to the, the next problem I think is deeply related, which is that because of this lack of now i'm not saying that there isn't deeply an actual way of uncovering truth all i'm saying is that it is striking that there is no, not widespread agreement at this point as to what constitutes evidence for a true argument um because of this and because because the focus then has to be on on sort of narrowing down questions you get to these questions that are and this is take it as tamler's point often that are of more and more narrow interest to the point of being utterly meaningless. Because if that's the only, you know, one way to think of it is if that's the only way the water can flow, um, the water will flow to those like little, you know, little dead end channels, right? Because it can't flow to the truth. And this gives philosophy a problem of prioritization. So they end up prioritizing the kinds of questions that allow for more and more minuscule distinctions. Um, and they fail to prioritize the very things that I think people think philosophy ought to be tackling. Like when we say the big questions, right? right. So um, what makes for a good life? What is morally right? What, what, um, what is wisdom and what is character? What is meaning and truth? Those things get lost because it's sort of like everybody's admitted that, well, that's crazy. You can't actually answer that. But you can't actually answer the question of the Gettier case either because that'll just lead to arguments about whether that's, that's the right way to answer it or not. So what that leads to is a sad state of affairs where what we might call fringe philosophy is indistinguishable from non-fringe philosophy. That is, fringe philosophy is philosophy. Um, there, is, there is no deep criteria for distinguishing the people at this point who... Uh, circulated the statement arguing against Tuvel's analysis of transracialism and transgenderism and the people who are arguing against those people, right? This is, it has become Red Sox Yankees where the people who have sort of either the loudest voice or the largest numbers in academia end up being the ones who, who sort of, I hesitate to even say win the argument, but just end up actually settling the debate. And this, this problem comes with it, the, the fact that there is no clear um, uh, criteria for truth, comes w along with, and, and these increasingly odd questions and irrelevant questions come with it sort of a desire to seem important, which leads to clouded language that has the flavor of sounding technical and scientific but is actually just obfuscating the problem so that nobody, don't look here, just don't look here, we're using these, these, right? And so it is not, it has the twin, the twin problems of both being 
not making any progress in its central questions and asking questions that are no longer relevant to society in many cases. And I don't know how you guys are going to get out of this. Okay. I know, I know you secretly agreed with everything I said. So it's where, I, it it's did hard seem like you geared those remarks as like a summary <laughs> of like the case that I've been making for a long time. Except for, but except I, for that I'm, comfor- I'm comfortable talking about truth conditions. So, okay. I take what you're saying very seriously, obviously. I do think talking about the Hypatia affair and its diagnosticity, I think that's overstating the the case because the overwhelming majority of the profession um, defended Rebecca Tuvel, condemned what the board of associate editors at Hypatia did, and Hypatia's own editor then issued a statement disavowing what the associate editor is saying and standing by the article. And so it doesn't seem like there was no agreement as to the conduct of the the people in charge of what happened. There, there doesn't seem to be within the field. I mean, of course, there are the people, the associate editors who who wrote the who who wrote the letter so there are but but pretty much everybody else just said no that's too far you published it through peer review for was it the philosophers who pointed this out because i yes, I, I agree that these were uh, okay it was philosophers um, and in fact you know a lot of yeah many philosophers including those who have separate problems with the article and I actually want to go into briefly the, the problems with the article because I have some sympathy with criticisms of the article. Right. But but not I have no sympathy with what the associate editors did in disavowing it, I think and and throwing Rebecca Tubell under the bus. And 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 it seems like no very few other people do, right? Like this was one where it seemed like in the end the philosophy world acted the right way or you know so that's number one number two you know when you're talking about the big questions versus you know which we don't have a, a an agreed upon way of of addressing and yet and we do have an agreed upon way of like figuring out whether something is a successful counterexample to a gettier case or something but who gives a shit and so <laughs> given like that just forces us to these questions where we can give uh, answers, you know, in this like in the way right. like logic it's like, well, it's or, like, or, or math. Right. It's like look, looking yeah. looking for your keys under the streetlight. Yeah, that is a that's a serious, serious problem. And I, the only thing I would say to it is philosophy is a 3000 year old discipline. It's had its ups and downs. It. Uh, or almost 3,000, I guess. And people seem like they're maybe moving in a direction. Like, you know, we've had Valerie Tiberius. We've talked about, we've talked a lot about Susan Wolf's work. Uh, these are philosophers who really are tackling the big questions. Um, and we've talked a lot also, Nancy Sherman, right? A lot of these philosophers are women. Um, right. But these are these are big time philosophers, very successful philosophers who are able to tackle big questions without getting involved. Even Thomas Thomas Nagel. Fi- yeah, Thomas Nagel, exactly. It is more the exception than the rule, and I don't know if it's changing in the right way or the wrong way. At least there's hope in the sense of 
we don't need to have a fully agreed upon method of determining the truth or plausibility of, you know, Valerie Tiberius's book on the good life or Susan Wolf on meanings in life, right? We don't have to have like a fully agreed upon method to make that a questions and a dialogue and a debate worth having. Um, you're right, maybe we haven't made that much progress on the big questions, but this, in, in the interview that I did with Simon Blackburn, he said, this is why people should think of philosophy more as a humanistic discipline um, and not expect that kind of progress. We're just finding new ways in our time to shed light on these important questions, just like Aeschylus was doing with drama. And we don't expect plays to be better than Aeschylus, or Shakespeare right now, but that doesn't mean that plays still shouldn't be written. There is hope that we can still have a dialogue about these big questions and that that, that dialogue has value. I, I guess what I wanted to ask is, um, yeah, so granted, I mean, these these are, these are again, things that, that doesn't take, it doesn't take too much to convince me that some people are actually talking about the big questions. But just to push it a little bit, is it a problem that... Um, that we've had to go back to asking the big questions in the same way that people used to ask them. And do you think that, uh, that when you say sort of like shedding light on these issues, like what, I, I guess one question is, what do you think has been shed light on that we didn't know, say a thousand years ago? What would you consider a success of academic philosophers um, that like, hey, you know, we used to think of things this way and now we think of things this way. Well, I mean, I think so you take some of the subfields like philosophy of science and some of ways of understanding science and scientific method, which we'll get to in the second segment. But that, I think, has at the very least, yeah, shed important light on what scientists are doing. You know, when it comes to the question of what makes a good life, what makes a valuable life, what makes a life worth living or a meaningful life, I don't, I don't think it's the right comparison to say, have we made progress on that question since, um, you know, Plato was trying to figure that out. The question is, have we, in our own time, the answers are going to be different, right, depending on well, right. the, the, the time that you live in and the various social dynamics, cultural dynamics, the answers are going to be different. So are philosophers able to shed light on our current contemporary experience? And I would say absolutely, like Susan Wolfe's work, Bernard Williams's work. You know, somebody to go at the other direction, like Peter Singer, is a success story in, in highlighting to us ways in which our attitudes and intuitions might be inconsistent, and in actually convincing people to change their behavior based on recognizing that. I mean, the whole effective altruism movement is driven by right. what was ultimately a philosophical argument. And, and again, I, it's not that I think they're right, necessarily but it's definitely been successful and it's definitely had value to have that perspective well so i i guess then one one question that that is just lingering is given that i know that you don't you don't particularly care for appeals to to consistency as ways to motivate moral moral beliefs that is i agree with you that people like singer have made a difference um but it's it still seems 
illustrative or diagnostic or something that there are tons of ethicists like professional philosophers who disagree fundamentally with Singer. Yeah. And so dis- despite that, he's made a, a difference, but but so did Sally Struthers, right? And so it's like, is is the difference by by going on TV as a famous person and convincing people to donate to, to help weepy. African children? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's like the robotic Sally Struthers. Um, uh, is his is Peter Singer his, is the robotic Sally Struthers? <laughs> yes. <laughs> is is his uh, ability to make a difference in the world tied to the fact that he is pointing out true things, or is it tied to the fact that he has managed to fool people? into believing a particular way. Uh, a I, see, I don't think that... fool is the right way to look at it. I think for some people, including him, like the the right sort of set of attitudes is geared towards this effective altruistic behavior. Um, and that's how, the, you know, that's where their reflective equilibrium ends up. That's where the balance of their intuitions. Now, now you say that I'm, ag- I'm against consistency. I, I'm not like I don't think cons- consistency has no weight at all. I think well, it sometimes does. sometimes you're sometimes you're against it and sometimes you're not. I just <laughs> right. Nice. Uh, I just think it's it's not like the be all end all. And furthermore, even if you thought it was the be all end all, you can still have different consistent sets of attitudes. Right. My reflective equilibrium doesn't uh, doesn't land in the same place that Singer's does, and that some of his uh, followers do. But it's still really important that he was able to point this out to people. He was able to show that deep their values reflected something that was very inconsistent with how they were behaving. And yeah, so this is this yeah. is great. This is great. I I actually agree with you. This is this is a, now now you're channeling me <laughs> where I, I think that there is there there is value. And Singer is certainly is an example of the kind of philosopher who's made a difference. As much as I would love uh, other philosophers to make a difference like Nagel and Tiberius, people who have written I think important things, it is a little sad to me that it's unclear how those voices would get out to change people's lives um, and I think maybe part of the problem is the way in which academic philosophy is sort of just sociologically positioned in society that those that those thinkers are far less likely to make an impact than say some self-help book guy you know right um, and and I wonder what, ha- what would have to change I would wager yeah. that Nagel, through you know papers like Moral Luck and the Absurd, has definitely made. Now it's not like it's not a difference like, you know, raising millions and millions of dollars to prevent um, suffering and starvation and famine. It's not a difference like that. But I bet that through those articles, he's caused many people to sort of rethink their how you know their orientation towards the world and has changed them in ways that they feel like they understand themselves better and they understand their confusion better now you're right they're not going to do as well as you know somebody uh, some self-help guru right but but more more along the lines of how many people do you think have even read thomas nagel who are not philosophers 
Well, I think, you know, he's such a staple in intro philosophy yeah. courses that I would say probably that's, a lot. But yeah, I mean, that's yeah. just that. I mean, that's not f- totally fair to, you know, blame. Philosophy. No, it's not a yeah. criticism. It's, yeah. it's not a criticism. It's more of a what's what's going on that there are these valuable things that I find valuable too in, right. in all of the examples you gave. That's not hitting. That's not really hitting. Uh, the minds of it. and and this gets to sort of there was a ancillary point that I was going to make that that it's about like there's increasing a, a sense to me that the, it, philosophy is increasingly irrelevant to the questions that real people have and how do you bring that back because I don't think that it's right to say that it is irrelevant in many cases it is something that I think people ought to be reading but are the incentives such that people won't write things for Yes. The common person. <laughs> Unambiguously, yes. Now, yeah. again, I think that's changing a little bit, but the balance of incentives is to publish. Like, that's the way you get jobs in a very tough market. You need to publish, and that's how you get tenure. That's how you're evaluated as a researcher. And it's very it's 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 very hard to publish like that it's really it's just much harder to publish a paper about the absurd or right. the meaning of life um, than it is to publish uh, a new ver- way of thinking about Frankfurt examples or uh, a, you know a new kind of fussy objection or counterexample to some principle so um, the incentive is at least until you're tenured and then once you're tenured for many of these philosophers it's like second nature now to engage in much in smaller questions that people have a better idea how to review in the peer review process cuz you know like somebody like a, a, a you know imagine a graduate student submitting the absurd nagel's the absurd <laughs> or uh, freedom and resentment or moral saints um, it would be it would be really hard and it, it, it's it's like and almost almost arrogant yeah it would be seen perceived, as perceived as arrogant yeah. arrogant yeah now you never know like it could be that somebody could do that so well that the that the insight was undeniable I'd like to think that but certainly in grad school they're getting pointed away from these questions um, and the bulk of the people they know aren't working on those big questions, and they're giving them the advice, no, you just got to get this out, publish that new objection to whoever in Phil's studies, and then you can worry about, you know, value. So let's, so let me ask this, because we've, we've been focused almost exclusively, our examples are from, from the sort of analytic tradition of philosophy. Mm -hmm. So the whole the whole other <laughs> like what we might call continental philosophy philosophy that that um does doesn't attempt to use the same standards um uh, they have, i'm sure they have their own standards but but i don't know that much about them but but what analytic philosophers might consider soft right so everything all of the work that might extend into critical theory, postmodernism, people who who sort of are philosophers and then extend into other fields like Derrida and Foucault and those things. Those are, I think, if I include those in my criticism, then things look especially bleak um, because I think 
that the influence they haven't even had Singarian influences where you could say where you could say like they've pointed to they've pointed out something important that have made people change. This to me is like some some serious circle jerkiness of like Well, so like, you say they haven't made much influence, but the number one most requested course that we get is something in existentialism. And a lot of existential yeah. philosophy is continental philosophy, right? So yeah, I think right. students at least initially are attracted to to those Yeah, kinds. as was I. Yeah. As was I. Yeah. Um uh, you learn you learn fairly quickly, at least in the U.S. and probably in, in the U.K., <laughs> that, that you shouldn't be, though. So um, let me be a bit Pollyanna-ish again. So I'll go back to the Hypatia um, controversy. And I said I had a little sympathy with what I have sort of pieced together as some of the more substantive criticisms of her paper. Now, again, it's one thing to criticize the paper. It's another thing f to disavow it after it went through your peer review process. Criticism right. of the paper, as I'm sure Rebecca Tuvel would agree, is totally welcome and is something that is exactly how philosophy is supposed to work. You publish an argument, somebody offers a criticism, and you take it from there. So, but here's the part of the criticism that I could perhaps find myself sympathetic to, and it relates to what you just said, it's this critique of ideal theory. The way I take it, her argument is, it just says, look, here is a group of people who want to become uh, uh, something different from what they are. They identify with a different gender than they are currently identified with, and let's see if we can find a principal distinction between that and um, somebody who wants to find themselves as one race and identifies more with another race. It's very much a kind of idealized, abstract form of argument, and the criticism is that you are ignoring the lived experience of people who are transgendered for the one thing, that an argument that abstract can't take into account what it actually feels like to be uh, transgendered, and I, I'm sure I'm not using the the proper terminology here. So <laughs> blanket forgive forgiveness. You, you don't have to. You don't have to publish this. You can. <laughs> I think that that that's a that's an important point. It, it sort of models critiques of feminist critiques of John Rawls that I have a lot of sympathy with as well, um, that you're ignoring the actual experience of people who, who see the world this way, and you can't ignore that. I think the criticism sort of su suggests that there aren't many people that want to be a different race or who really do identify as a different race. And that's an important piece of, if that's true, and I don't know if it's true, but if it is true, that's an important piece of information. And maybe, and I, this is the part where I think the criticism gets shaky, to sort of blithely compare the two trivializes some of the experiences, which is undoubtedly a really difficult thing to be born one gender and just feel like the other gender in society being what it is, that's, that's undoubtedly a really 
difficult thing to have to go through. And you could see that if somebody seemed like they were using that as a springboard to some sort of abstract argument, that that might, um, that that might piss you off. And you, you would at least want those kinds of experiences to be taken into account. So I, I think that is sort of an offspring of the critical theory the, and, and some of the uh, continental views where it really is about subject, it takes subjective experience into account a lot more than analytic philosophers are, are comfortable with doing. And I actually think that philosophy across the board needs to do a lot more of that and be more suspicious or skeptical of abstract theorizing. However, the, where it goes wrong is when it goes from, please take our experiences into account to we are infallible and anything we say can't be criticized by somebody who also doesn't live this experience. That's the line you can't cross because at that point, then dialogue becomes impossible. You have to at least still be able to raise questions about what the person is arguing. And it seems like some of these people, they start off with, you don't like, I, I, like I, your criticism doesn't mean anything to me. You're a cis white feminine, you know, white female or a cis white male. So I, I think that that is the very natural result of your criticism. So I, I thought where you were going, um, I thought you were going to go somewhere else uh, with your criticism, because I, I too find some sympathy in the criticisms of Tuvel's paper that I think she would also like. But that is not in that there is an ideal theory that it's ignoring subjective experience, but rather there are various relevant factors that even in the mode of finding sort of the analytic similarities and differences she completely ignored. So what I fear with your particular criticism is that, in fact, there could be people, like Dolezal claims herself, who has a lived experience of wanting to be African-American, even though she was born white. Yeah. And if you allow that as the sort of primary source of, of you know, in, in your theory building, then you really do get to the point where, like, you can say with, with full justification, you cannot speak as as to my experience. And so therefore I do not allow you, um, to, to tell me whether or not this is the right or the wrong way to, to think, act, or believe. I think that it's a much easier low hanging way to say that say like, Hey, you know, the factors that influence gender identity are a whole set of factors that are very, very different from the factors that influence racial identity. And those may or may not be relevant to the question as to whether you could be transracial or transgendered, but at least they make the two uh, the two positions uh, not not equivalent in in some deeper ways than she seems to be uh, pointing to and and to me that's a matter of ignoring some brute facts about the empirical nature of of the mechanisms that form gender versus race yeah there's two there's two related I think ways of stating the point one is that the empirical facts the relate the relevant empirical facts matter a right. lot in this uh yeah. so here's where it gets tricky though the lived experience also so influences the anger that yeah, yeah. that greeted yeah. the the article and so where their objections yeah. 
to Hypatia publishing it is essentially that it was a disrespectful uh, <laughs> article to to people who are already marginalized within the profession. And if journals start um, using that as a criterion, like to what extent yeah. is it um, respectful of the lived experience of marginalized uh, communities, well, then it really does become very hard to know what should go into a journal and what should not go into a journal. Now, maybe Hypatia right. just wants to be that journal. It doesn't look like it does because, you know, it did in the end, the editor did stand by the, the, the paper. So at least not to that extent. Yeah. It struck me that the criticisms, you know, you, you could imagine that Tuvel said, okay, like before I submit this or before I get it published, I'm going to give it to one of these following people um, to make sure that all of the language and all the examples that I give are actually non-offensive in the way that they claim is offensive. I seriously don't think that that's what was driving the wrath with which her article was met. No. I think it was just the nature of the conclusion, and then it was yeah. a search for reasons, right? And so, so there, it's the criticism could have been leveled much more elegantly, and I think that that um, it's sort of both both sloppy and demeaning to to say, and here's why you're wrong because you dead named Caitlyn Jenner. No, she might be wrong for good reasons, right? Like this, yeah. this. The rest is just editorial policy. Like, get a better copy editor. You know, if you want to make sure the pronouns are right and stuff like that, and you want to be respectful. You don't want to use conversion to Judaism because you know some people who might find that offensive, which is deeply offensive to convert to Judaism. Um, <laughs> but but that's not really that's not really what's driving the the criticism. Well, I think it's driving it in that I think the idea is like using the example of Judaism conversion, even using Rachel Dolios. How do you pronounce that? Dolazal. Dolazal um, trivializes something that you know is suffered by real actual people not that rachel Dole, dolezal wasn't a real person but uh <laughs> she's a very special case and it's not totally clear what her motivations were um or or why she did what she did i guess i don't know i don't know anything about that but but also i i, I want to emphasize that coming up with these criticisms is one thing even if i think they're silly like the dead like right. the you know dead naming bruce jenner or caitlin jenner when you know he does that all the time she does that all the she does that yeah. i'm fucked <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's the that you know i i think that's silly but I, it's fine if you want to make that criticism don't demand that a journal that accepted it and went through the peer review process retract it and then just you know hang this untenured young right. feminist philosopher out to dry like that that's the thing right. that i think that that's that's another line but the, but you can see how these things all bleed in and this is a serious problem it's like yeah once you get to this kind of infallibility um based on your and identity that's then like it's very hard to know where these things stop you know morally speaking and, in your own mind and and this is what gives me the optimism that we're less fucked as psychologists because i don't i for all the problems that we have there is um there is 
probably not the chance that that kind of criticism would gain traction. There wouldn't be a faction of people who really believed that this was the problematic aspect of a journal article. Mm. What about when anybody tries to do a study on racial differences? Or yeah, the, pe- the people who get the most upset are the people who got upset at, at, at this article. Right? right. These these tend not to be. So it they, couldn't. They tend not to be. Uh, but oh, like, you mean the what, actual people, like not psychologists? Yeah, yeah. What, you don't think? Yeah, I mean some some psychologists, but um, but this but is just some philosophers. Yeah, but but let's make a distinction here between arguing about so so what you can say with some uh, with some general degree of confidence is that either a psychologist can mount a uh, an argument about why the data is flawed and the conclusions are wrong, or they cannot, right? They could mount, you could mount another argument, which is just like, you're, it's offensive that you've even done this. But that, what I'm saying is that the conclusions that are drawn in that paper aren't up for debate in the same way that they seem to be up for debate in a purely philosophical paper, where, where you could say like, you no, know, in fact, because you've ignored lived experience, your conclusions are not right. Um, in a psychological paper, you know, unless there's ambiguity as to how the data was collected and the nature of that data, and right, would there never are a set of standard. Well, it happens, but the the but those exactly prove the point that everybody knows that there are some standards. Yeah, I mean, so look, it didn't really gain traction in our field, right? The objection didn't gain traction either. There was, it's just that at because it's philosophy. We don't have you, and you can always question something. We don't have a decisive way of saying truth value false for those kinds of criticisms. But there was over what, like I said, I mean, I don't need to repeat it. There was overwhelming consensus that the board acted inappropriately, and so I don't know. Like I know you could yeah. make those no, no. same criticisms of psychology, and you know, like. At, at the end, any science has some philosophy underneath it that can always be challenged, right? Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that you could ha- you could imagine an empirical article that is controversial, um, like, for instance, um, people have written these review papers arguing that um, that children who were sexually abused don't have like their outcomes aren't nearly as bad as people think. Right. So yeah. so this was a published in the American Psychologist. Now, you you could uh, sort of mount a criticism, write letters to the editor and ask that they pull it on the basis of the fact that you find that argument offensive. Or you could actually uh, try to to mount an empirical objection that that the that the science is actually flawed, misrepresented or not reported accurately. And I'm all I'm saying is that because we have that latter option available to us, it is it gives some hope that progress will be made. Um, not you know, it's it's I guess it's less easy to police somebody for being just flat out like I don't know. It seems like un- Charles Murray light. had didn't find it too difficult to get policed for his. Well, this view. is why. But no, but this is I mean, you could talk about the sociological sort of issues regarding what you're allowed to study and what you're not. But I don't think anybody would disagree that there I, there is a fact of the matter about whether his claims are true or not. I think well what I find yeah. distressing is that people don't yeah. want to dig into it. Right? right. They're like, yeah, it's like, no, it's like offensive to even begin digging into it. 
But once you do, then it's just a matter of like, well, what is the actual relationship and why is it there? Uh, who pee hacked where? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Can I confess one way that I'm a bad person? Yeah. You know, when the whole Rebecca Tuvel thing, uh, when it hit and there was a lot of anger, a lot of people losing friends, uh, you know, she was thrown under the bus and, and experienced a lot of hate mail, apparently, and um, the, the, the philosophy as a profession was getting ton of bad press, and it, it was just really sad, but my first thought when I was, when my colleague told me about it was, ooh, this might be good for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like the ambulance chasers <laughs> exactly we're the ambulance chasers of like the things that like cause real people suffering we're like actively hoping i hope someone pulls out their dick inappropriately like, <laughs> right can't wait we need it it's been a long it's been a while we need another john searle <laughs> i know remember when colin mcginn used to give us all that quality content <laughs> <laughs> Should we use that as a transition to go into our break yeah, and talk about yeah. the problems of your field? Yes. All right. I'm looking forward to this. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Um, in the midst of our shit talking about each other's discipline, we want to say here's one thing that we think is good and valuable and wonderful, and that is you guys. <laughs> we can agree upon the fact that uh, that you have uh, been wonderful listeners. Um, I know I say this every time, but even more so, like, and maybe it's because we got a few more listeners and more activity. Um, it's it's just very heartening to hear to hear that people get value out of this. I I find myself going back and wondering whether I would ever start a podcast again and build an audience. It's it seems so daunting and hard to do it, but but we have an audience, and you guys contact us, and we appreciate it. We appreciate all of the support. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can leave us comments on our Facebook page, which is always lively. Uh, you can tweet to us at verybadwizards, at tamler, at peas. Um, if you would like to offer more tangible sources of support, you could go to our verybadwizards.com page and click on support there. Uh, we have a Patreon page where you can, we love our Patreon supporters. We really um, do. 
Yeah, we we really appreciate everything. Even the smallest of donations makes a difference. Um, Patreon.com slash VeryBadWizards. Um, or finally, you can support, although recently Amazon is cracking down, I guess we're not supposed to be giving out our affiliate link. Are we not supposed funds. to be giving it that? out or just not saying they support us? Yeah, there's something about sort of using a blanket link and asking people to do their regular shopping, but whatever. There's an Amazon link if they want to take it away from us. <laughs> so be it. Um, but please uh, you keep can... using it while we have it because <laughs> yes, it's, been, it's been great and it doesn't cost you anything and it helps us keep the lights on, as Dave likes to say. That's right. That's right. And um, Or their PayPal donations are appreciated as well. So thank you, everybody, um, for for your support, and we hope to continue doing the shit that we do that makes you happy, sad, angry. You, In your passive-aggressive way of getting taking shots at my daughter, you forgot our Instagram account. Oh, yeah. I always forget it. Uh, Instagram, um, is it Instagram.com slash VeryBadWizards? I think Follow so. on Instagram. Yeah. Um, that is, after all, it. where the young people are. I know. Uh, you can follow. You can also follow me, Pease is my name, on Instagram, because I'm one of the... Oh, and we yeah. should say that you just dropped an exciting new release, <laughs> your Nas remixes. Yeah, I was motivated to... Uh, Nas is one of my favorite rappers, and in my spare time as a tenured professor, in my insomnia, I made a just real short seven seven tracks where I got Nas's acapellas, and I posted them on Bandcamp. You can find those. Um, I, I'll put a link. It's like bandcamp.com. Pieces my name. But it, I called it the Gnostic Gospels because I thought I was clever. Um, but yeah, that was really fun to do. So please, you know, it's a free download. Um, go ahead, share it. It's be, uh, be honest. You were inspired by Lin Manuel Miranda and um, Jesus H Christ and uh, Hamilton. Let's plug success. that. Let's plug that discussion. So Tamler the other day, I, I know we're, sp- we're running out of time. We're supposed to talk about this, but Tamler the other day, I you know I have very uh, very specific views about hip hop, and the other day Tamler texts me says, "Listen to the the Bill Simmons podcast um, with uh, Michael Rappaport, who's an actor who's also a big hip hop fan. He actually produced a, a documentary on a Tribe Called Quest. Uh, he's a big big hip hop fan. He says, "Listen, gave me he gave me the uh, the time stamp." Uh, listen to this discussion about how, how um, Hamilton is not real hip hop. It's a tirade that I wish would have lasted for half an hour of Michael Rappaport talking about Hamilton not being hip hop. Let me tell you something, Bill. That's one of the biggest frauds. That's one of the biggest con jobs. They're like, it's like a hip hop experience. You drive through any hood in any part of the United States, name nobody. Rocking the Hamilton soundtrack outside the bodega in any hood. This fucking thing, it's like it's like Dr. Suits rapping. Like that set hip hop back. They're like, and I, I'm not no disrespect to Lin Man. It's a great achievement and all that shit. But like people are like, well, it's like hip hop, but it's Hamilton and it's positive. That ain't fucking hip hop. That's not fucking hip hop. Don't fool yourself, people. Don't waste your money thinking that's hip hop. And I was like, yes, that's. I've made this argument. It's hard to make. It's hard to make around around the liberal whites um, who who seem to think of this as like the they finally finally recognize hip hop as an art form, but what they don't know is that this is not not really hip hop. Um, uh, so yeah. All right, you can delay what's coming, but you can't put it off forever. I want uh, any of the other podcasts you want to plug. Any other just unrelated. 
things. Uh, buy the Very Bad Wizard book by Tamler uh, uh, Summers. Uh, you can. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I like that. We might uh, <laughs> do another Teespring thing. I, I'm liking that oh, yeah, shirt yeah. and yeah. Um, so uh, and the mugs. The mugs have been popular. Okay, yeah. now after taking Dave's pot shots in the first segment. Um, I gotta say, it hurt to make my arguments because right. they were so compelling, you know. And it hurt me to try to reply to things, <laughs> much of which I agree with, like wholeheartedly. Um, that's what this is for. So, so I'm gonna break down psychology's um, fucked upness or fuckedness into three different levels. So here are three different levels of psychology's. Fuckedness, if that's a word. What's um? And Can we just say fuck uppery? Fuck uppery. Fuck uppery. That, yeah. Mm. Can I coin that? No, you don't like it. All right. I kind of like fucked fuckedness just because it's awkward. Fuck uppery sounds like you're kind of proud of yourself. You know, <laughs> like you're, right. it's like hold my beer, kind of. You know. <laughs> I can't, you can't accuse me of uh, when I just coined it. Yeah, that's um, true. All right. So here, the first issue with psychology is really on the fringes i i would i would sort of compare it to like the hypatia thing in some sense in that i don't think it's anywhere close to the the fundamental problem um and that's like just fraudulent data like actively fraudulent data like what's the guy stemple stopple 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 Diedrich yeah. stopple yeah uh mark uh mark harman Hauser, Mark, Mark, <laughs> Mark, you didn't read about uh, Mark Harmon's, um, he, after, after the acting thing didn't work out, he went into <laughs> psychology. I, I don't think it's a deep problem in psychology because they're still fairly rare. Um, the, the only way it's a problem that's even worth mentioning is the way in which it sheds light on certain incentives the fact that people are motivated to do this and that they can become very successful by doing this is is a problem, although I think it would be a problem in any science and there's nothing you can do about it other than just vigilance. So yeah. set I mean, that it aside. Is, it is a problem across sciences. Yeah. yeah. So the second is <laughs> is the one that everyone talks about, um, the, 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 the reproducibility, the problems with reproducing results in psychology, the, the quote-unquote replication crisis. So many high-profile results and results that have been around for a long time are failing to replicate, uh, including, and this is the farthest thing from an exhaustive list, the power pose, grit, ego depletion, smiling makes you happy, priming, you know, like walking down a hallway slower after reading a lot of words about aging, the Macbeth effect, stereotyping, essentially every TED talk ever basically now <laughs> labors under the shadow. Except for mine. Uh, except for yours, under the shadow of doubt and suspicion. Even yours, this is part of the problem with it, is now as a non-psychologist, it's very hard to know what effects to trust and what effects um, not to trust. And I think this is a serious problem. It is one that psychologists, to your credit, are alert to, it seems like, and working to address. But I actually think that there's not a huge consensus about how to address it. There's not really, and we've talked about this in earlier episodes, there doesn't yet seem to be an institutional framework in place for addressing it in a 
in a comprehensive way. And there are big time establishment people who want to maintain the status quo and who dismiss the idea that this really is a serious problem. So your boy, Dan Gilbert, Susan Fisk, and that infamous, um, uh, what was it, like APA? Methodological, oh yeah, APA monitor. The, the, the one APS where she accused something. people yeah. of being bullies and uh, methodological ter- terrorists. Terrorists, yeah. yes. That's the second problem. You know, I, I it's not that you guys aren't on are aren't aware of it. I do think that it's a really difficult problem for reasons we'll get into to address, um, and that it would require radically altering like the incentive structure and how what journals accept for publication, why they accept them. So that's the second problem. But it's not even the deepest. And the deepest one, this is one I'm not that certain about. It's not fully clear that psychology has the kind of track record and the kind of overarching methodology um, in place that guarantees that it can be a real progressive science and by progressive i don't mean like microaggressions are bad (laughs) i I mean in the sense of making progress so like a progress making i thought you meant the new deal the the new deal (laughs) it's it's not totally clear in the way that other fields of science can claim to be look we go through our you know our fraudulent stuff our failures to replicate but we have this huge track record of of resounding successes, you know, in physics or in biology or in um, in chemistry, it's not totally clear that psychology has that kind of track record. And a kind of related deep problem is that if psychology were to become the kind of science that did make progress in the ways that those other fields did, it, it seems like it would have to be with very modest, tentative results uh, about human tendencies under highly specified conditions, rarely generalizable outside the lab or outside very specific kinds of circumstances. And if, if it did become that kind of science, and let's say for the sake of argument, it should be because that would, you know, so many of the problems have been overstating the effects that, that they're getting. So if it did became this much more modest kind of form of inquiry, then it just won't get the attention or justify the resources that are currently devoted towards it, right? So currently you get a ton of resources but part of it is the perception of what you're capable of doing is very different than what psychologists are capable of doing. I mean, this is the most obvious when it comes to neuroscience. Cognitive neuro- neuroscience probably has the biggest gap between what the public at large thinks it's doing and what it really is actually capable of doing. But arguably, you could say that maybe to a slightly lesser extent about social psychology. And if the public really knew what psychology can do and how modest those advances would be, well, then they would treat it more like philosophy. It would be kind of, it would, that the attention is part of what sort of funds it and drives it. And psychologists need resources in a way that philosophy doesn't. 
that would be kind of a structural problem with psychology as it is as it is currently practiced in a society yeah so that's it good there's um there's like little tears down <laughs> down my cheek and biting my tongue until it was bleeding I think that there's so really quickly the fraud thing. Yes, this is a, a a matter of incentives, as you said. This is you know the biggest fraudsters are actually not in psychology. This is a problem with science. Um, one thing I will say is, um, as as some of my colleagues have pointed out, that the ability to detect fraud is um, has been um, by looking at the statistical say distribution of means and standard deviations. That's been something that psychologists have contributed to probably more than than most other fields um so but it's a so, statistical insight yeah right? yeah but statistics for for the yeah for the behavioral sciences right it's, it's not statistics as math but statistics as, a, as applied math um the p hacking i'll say one well a few things about this i think that you're underestimating the extent to which institutions and journals are in place i agree with you that it, what it requires is large-scale changes that are actually difficult um, but a number of journals have already done this. So Brian Nosek, for instance, his op uh, Center for Open Science, the Open Science Foundation, um, has a, a publicly available uh, sort of interface where anybody can use um, those resources, that website, in order to make their data available, um, pre-register their hypotheses, um, so it, at no cost to any researchers, there's infrastructure being built. There are people using them. My own students have begun, um, pre-registering all of, we've begun pre-registering all our hypotheses because this is an important practice for just to get a little bit inside baseball that, um, one of the problems with psychology and behavioral science traditionally is that when you do tons of statistical analyses using null hypothesis testing, um, you can, you will find some effects. Some of us call that harking. Harking, yeah. Hypothesizing harking. after uh, the results are known. Yeah, and in fact, in my in my own career, you can I can tell the complete difference in the way that I was trained originally. That this was perfectly fine. That is, you run a study and then you look at the results and then you write your paper as if those results were the ones that you had expected. In fact, there's a there was a very popular article written by Daryl Bem that instructed just this much. He said, "You're not when you write a paper up, it's going to be very different than the paper that you envisioned writing when you first started the project." Um, now we know with some certainty that this is deeply problematic, and so one way to do this is to constrain the what what um, what they've called the researcher degrees of freedom. That is, constrain yourself so that if you're going to use null hypothesis testing so that it, you're not getting a bunch of false positives. And I, I, at least in my own practice, like this is now standard. Um, and I believe that most, maybe pre-registering isn't standard across the field, but certainly reporting all of the... So pre-registering you your hypothesis, right? That's the yeah. idea. So you can't just have yeah. a hypothesis run... Uh, and then like mine the data afterwards, see that your hypothesis wasn't supported, but then find after the fact coming up with another hypothesis that would fit that data. And it's exactly. a really interesting hypothesis, you know? Yeah. And now, yeah. and, and there's something just fucked up about that because the chances of false positives are really high. Exactly. You just start like, you start making conclusions that will be unwarranted. Another thing is, um, is, 
the a better understanding of how much statistical power is needed. That is how how many observations you need to make anything like a decent conclusion. And so so it is now uh, just completely understood that we cannot run the studies that we used to run with like twenty people per experimental condition or fifteen. We used to be run twelve to fifteen people per experimental condition. Turns out that this also can really inflate the false positive rate. And so most journals would probably and anybody who tried to submit, at least in social psychology, where we have access to lots of people, they would say, you can't just submit something with 12 people per, per cell. That's, that's ludicrous. So that, that, has, uh, that has changed. Um, we're allowed to do exploratory tests, by the way. It's just now that we, we just have to say that. These weren't pre-registered, so take it with a grain of salt, right? These, this is what we Do you have to fact. say that, or is it voluntary? No, 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 point? no. Um, but if you pre-register... It's not as if you can't then go run a bunch of exploratory statistics. You just have to say, um, you, you, by have, I mean you ought to, right? You say, I pre-registered this. There's a record of it. And since there is a record of your pre-commitment to only test those hypotheses, then it sort of just falls out that the uh, any additional hypotheses are exploratory. And so people take those with a grain of salt. And I have a paper where we did exactly this with uh, Yoel and Barbara Brian Nosek, um, and uh, Brian's grad student. Um, and we, we had two different sections, the exploratory and, and the, and the pre-registered ones. So don't, so you're, I, don't worry, young psychologists, you can still data mine. <laughs> you can still, you can, as long as you say that you're data mining. Um, and then what you do is then you go test that hypothesis. If you think that something true emerged there. So there's a lot like, so I, Perhaps I'm overstating the degree to which the changes will happen across the board. There's still a lot of journals who don't require you to make your data publicly available. There's still there the vast majority, right? Uh, maybe I guess it's yeah. There's so many journals that I'm sure that that statement is true. But a number of high impact journals are starting to ask for these very very specific practices. Like every week, I feel like there's another there's another journal that that is implementing some of these changes. Um, and I, I actually don't doubt that eventually it will, it will happen because like, there are just a lot of social reasons why people don't want to do this. And, and I think those reasons are ridiculous. I think that they're, they're stupid. I think not pre-registering is stupid. Nobody's preventing you from doing all the analyses you want. All that said, like, and, and I, so I'm going to point people to the, to the, um, some relevant articles and blog posts by friends of the podcast, Sanjay Srivastava, Samin Vizier. Uh, Daniel Lakens, all of who have been sort of really, really uh, active in this sort of younger generation of psychologists to change all of these practices to make our conclusions better. And I think that we're making progress in this. I think everybody would agree that if w once we do that, we'll do better. I, in, in fact, I think methodologically, we are at a, in a better place than we have ever been as a science. Um, it's just taken a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth to get here. All that said, the most interesting thing that you said is the last thing. And I think that's the real, real, real fucking like it, like twisting the testicles of the field to feel the pain. That's what I was going for. Twisting the testicles of the field. Yeah. Or or the nipples or the labia or whatever, whatever the equivalent would be. For <laughs> Let's not make any uh, assumptions. I don't want to not be crass to both uh, members of both sex. Um <laughs> So what would a successful psychology really look like, a scientific psychology? You, you, among the things you said were, um, imagine that we had these, like we were no longer uh, 
we no longer had questionable research practices. P-hacking was done away with, assume no fraud, assume uh, big sample sizes, good uh, significance testing practices, um, conclusions from controlled, constrained lab studies or perhaps field studies that actually yielded results that seemed true in some deep sense, true. But, were they, that, were, but, but oh, people didn't overstate how generalizable they were. Well, that's the question is now, yeah. now, would those results be able to do something like predict the behavior of individuals or groups um, sort of writ large across across the board? And I think that here there is an important distinction to be made between science as seeking an explanation and understanding a mechanism that is involved in any process. So, um, so you're say you're a social psychologist and you want to know. Um, what is it that makes some people p- pursue theater and some people stay at home alone and and not not ever want to be in public? And so you try to s- you measure extroversion and you try to find find uh, exactly how extroversion influences this and how like whatever the developmental trajectory is. Now, it could very well be that you find something solid like. Hey, turns out extroversion is a good predictor of whether or not you, that is, it's a significant predictor. But there are a host of other things that are at play if you, what you want to do is predict whether or not somebody will take to the theater. It's a stupid example, but let's just run yeah. with it. It's like, so, um, so it turns out that even though you might say it is an important causal factor in people's choice of career path, it could be very, very small. And I think importantly, if you were to measure it across the population, you might not see it. Right. So what do we make of the you might not see it? Is it that it's not true that extroversion really does matter? It was only true in your sample of like elite, you know, Northwestern liberal white kids um, uh, that it's not a truth about human nature. There's where it starts to get really problematic because it could very well be that you've uncovered a law, a, as close to a law as possible, about how the mind works and how it influences social behavior. It's just that because human behavior is so complex and determined by so many causal factors that it might not emerge in any specific instance. And so the problem of generalizability, if you want to predict the behavior of any given person, it might actually not yield any valuable predictions. But nonetheless, might be true. You know, this is not a problem that is is specific to psychology. It's it's um, you know physicists who are who who understand the mechanisms of the the physical laws of our universe. They know very they know full well how gravity works, and what they know for sure is that the force of gravity works equally on a bowling ball and a feather, right? But you never, ever, ever in real life see a bowling ball and a feather hit the ground at the same time if dropped from the same height. But physicists know that this is because there are things like, uh, you know, the surface area of the feather um, and the wind that actually influence the feather above and beyond the laws of gravity. It is, it's not that the laws of gravity are wrong whenever you see that a bowling ball and a feather hit d- at different times. It's just that you understand that there are other things at work. We don't have a clear understanding of all of the things that would be at work. And in fact, most physical systems that physicists try to describe are super duper simple compared to even the stupidest decision of a human being. Like we might have a thousand causal influences that are at work every time you choose to like fucking, you know, scratch your butt. And finding out what those are in combination 
would be important for predictive validity if you really want to know when when will people scratch their butt or not. But it might not be that important if all you want to know is does tickling somebody with a feather make them scratch their butt into th- in these lab conditions or something like that. You could say like, hey, this actually does cause this. And there is where I don't know where we've, we're going to get in psychology. And you can see know. how, and, and one possibility is that it really can't. It just can't. Human beings are too complex and our methods are too crude to be able to give that kind of predictive accuracy across situations that people are actually interested in. So the reason you get the big bucks is because of people can public, you know, like newspapers can start reporting about, you know, ego depletion. We only have a certain amount of self-control and you can't waste it. So like apply that to your everyday life or power posing or believing you have free will makes you more moral or something like that. And once you stop being able to make those kinds of claims, it's a question of like how, like where is our people going to any longer have the interest in funding what you're doing to the extent that they are right now. And you could say, well, they fund physicists, but physics has, this is where the track record comes into play. Physics has a much greater track record for success than psychology. We send people to the moon. Yeah. Right. Well, so here's where I'm going to push back a little bit because I think that given the examples that you give, it seems as if we have no track record. But in fact, when you extend beyond sort of the the social psychological examples that you've you've uh, given, there is in fact all, there are a lot of findings that I think are on on decent uh, ground, um, right? So, for instance, um, just to give an example from uh, just recently talking to a therapist who studies anxiety, right? there are actually we understand pretty well how to treat anxiety disorders with a high degree of success. In fact, if you have a specific phobia, like if you are really, really freaked out by spiders, what we've learned from psychology, we can get you into the lab and within a couple of weeks, that phobia will be gone. It's actually like pretty damn reliable. Likewise, with a lot of the mechanisms of, of learning through uh, classical conditioning and um, through operant conditioning, like those things are actually, this is exactly what we use to train animals, but you can also use it to, uh, to easily cause, uh, I use it on my daughter growing up so that she wouldn't throw tantrums. Like you can learn these, these uh, principles that we've acquired, that we've, that we've learned about through systematic experimentation on animals and on human beings that actually influence behavior. (laughs) I should, no, I'm not (laughs) stupid. There are a lot of things that we've learned and and there are other fields like the the study of of visual and auditory perception, like low-level cognitive stuff, where we have a really pretty good understanding of these things. I mean, the technology of compressing music into MP3 files um, comes from our understanding of of the sort of sensory thresholds that that people can distinguish versus not be able to distinguish. So we can actually take away all of the noise that people can't really hear anyway. This comes from experimental testing in laboratories through many many years. So there's a lot that we can't that we have learned and that we can actually apply and use in order to change behavior in order to understand behavior. It's just I think. I think that you're not wrong to point to 
starting in the 90s, this subset of super sexy findings in social psychology that made claims that were just just like we, we did write, write checks that our ass couldn't cash. In retrospect, and in some, in some cases, look, looking at it at the time, it was like, this can't, this can't be true, right? Like, it's, it can't be true that 99% of our behavior is automatically primed by the environment. Like, I don't even know what that means, right? But that was the sexy thing. That was the sexy thing. I mean, so, so but, but, it, but it didn't happen in a vacuum, right? It happened, and, and to be fair, some of these... Uh, some of these effects are effects that psychologists themselves have studied, but it happened between some combination yeah. of like motivated <laughs> reasoning, these right, cognitive right. biases, and though importantly, like what is going to generate interest and money the in, in the larger structure, public. Yeah, that's absolutely like the incentive structure. It started, and I could see it sort of starting with the like not to put blame. Um, there are plenty of people who contributed to this, but it started with a kind of popularization Bully. of social psychology of Malcolm Gladwell. Um, right. And because that was so exciting and it, it sold books, like there was increasing incentive to do these sort of sexy studies. There were journals who, who were starting to publish only those kinds of like, like, oh, wow, turns out, did you know, it turns out that, that this, right? All you have to do is this. And, you know, all you have to do is read this one statement in the morning and your GPA at the end of the semester will have like gone up. I think that we got a lot of ego stroking for making, for having these findings that were quote unquote scientific. So you were and- like a child actor that just got too <laughs> big, too fast. Exactly. And now you're in exactly. your like we got drug. Ugly. We're in like the ugly phase. Yeah. You know, we <laughs> yeah, we just got to avoid this the near nearly certain suicide of <laughs> the heroin overdose. Got to get we got to get past <laughs> past that hump. Um it's a, so part of the problem in in talking about psychology as a whole is that there are so many different subdisciplines. Like I I guarantee that you probably weren't thinking even of categorizing the clinical. psychology of perception, uh, right? Yeah. Or clinicals, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like classical conditioning, operant conditioning, um, and and that's that's fair because the controversy hasn't been surrounding that much. But there are equivalent areas of medical science that I think are on just as shady ground. Oh yeah. Um, and and I think and this is what I really wanted to get to that. It, we know, for instance, uh, you know, the statistician Ioannidis uh, wrote a, a, an article on basically how probably 50% of all published research findings are false. Right. And um, this is true in the medical literature. This medical, medical science has had an extraordinarily difficult time reproducing um, findings on cancer drugs, for instance, all of the warped incentives that are present in in psychology are even even more present in medicine, um, with much more uh, destructive results. With much more destructive results, or just even imagine, like when we were growing up, you know, you were supposed to have eat high carb, low fat foods, right? And this just ended up giving everybody like type two diabetes, you know, like in right. heart disease. <laughs> like we didn't know, um, but that's that was the state of of the science, and so people. But I think that there's two different things happen, and I think that it's just, it's it's um, it's because people have two very different views about what the problems in psychology are and the problems in other sciences and other fields are. I think that people look at the medical science and say nutrition or whatever, and they say, "Oh yeah, doesn't that show just how hard it is to like collect good data and have good conclusions?" Nobody questions whether medicine 
ought to be a science or whether so long as we did it right, we would get the right results and know things, true things about medicine. But I think that people are already deeply suspicious of psychology because, and I don't think this is true of you, but I think that in the public, in the in the in the mind of the public, psychology is already um, magic. Like the mind is magical in a way that bodies are not. And I think that people have. I hesitate to call it dualism because I don't think anybody explicitly, or well, I don't think, I don't think men all these people explicitly endorse dualism, but I do think that people think of the mind as different and it's different stuff. And we have free will at some level. The mind is not available to be, to have laws acting on it in the same way as physical bodies. And, and I think that's why people delight in the findings that psychology. See, they say, see, I knew it was all bullshit. I mean, that's possible, but it is also possible that, um, Psychology is more like economics, where the way the field is set up in large part is geared towards oversimplifying incredibly complex forces. When you actually look at what, you know, economic theory can do, it becomes again, if you're doing economics right, there's no more laws of history or laws of, you know, and, and no more massive models of how human beings behave in economic life. It's just these really, really small little things. And people do question whether economics is a, and maybe political science to some degree, this is true too, whether this really is a worthwhile endeavor to engage with the very very specific scientific methodology of the harder sciences in something that is this with this many variables that maybe some there's some sort of mismatch between the methodology and the area of inquiry right so i think that one important difference is that economics really does hold out the sort of promise that it can predict the behavior of a sort of of people and as as you know the the, the economic behavior of the group and I think that psychology doesn't need to make that. I, I think a lot of people do think that this is what psychology is trying to do, but I don't think that the multivariable problem is 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 threatening to psychology as a science in the same way. Um, I think that actually what we have that e economists traditionally don't have is experimentation. And I think that what we're doing with experimentation is isolating variables to see whether or not those variables themselves have a causal make make a causal uh, if have a causal effect on behavior or judgment or perception or whatever the case may be. And I think that that is the key to the scientific method that that experimental so long as we do it right. And I don't think we you know I think there's a lot of instances in which we don't do it right. We don't measure the right way. We don't manipulate in the right way. But when we do experiments right, we can learn that. Thing A causes thing B. Now, we can't build up to, maybe we won't be able to build up to predicting the behavior of any given person at a given moment. Um, but we can statistically, reliably predict that, you know, if an effect is of this size, the chances are when this cause is active, there is this chance that this effect will emerge. And maybe it, when we get uh, computers that are can crunch the numbers enough, we'll be able to predict with with high degrees of certainty, tossing in a whole bunch of variables. It's so it's a matter of figuring out the right questions to ask to 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 know whether or not some behavior is going to change. So you know in 
um, political science, there's a split between the quant people and the political theorists. And yeah. the quant people are actually running experiments and they're uh, engaged in a lot of data analysis, whereas the political theorists... So I don't theorists, know that they're running experiments. There's a difference between just okay. analyzing existing data sets and running experiments. So there's big data, which is something we could talk about some other time. There's yeah. just analyzing data sets like economists, and, right. and then there's actually running experiments where you have tight control over the... But anyway. But yeah. so what my, my, my point is, you could make an argument, and I don't know enough about the discipline, um, that when you're studying something like politics, the way the political theorists are going about it is actually a more appropriate way of understanding um, that area of inquiry, political forces and so forth. Because the, the methods that the political scientists have, whatever they are, are just not capable of understanding the political arena in any really precise way, in a way that justifies the the amount of effort that they put into it. It just and so you don't really have that in psychology, but as but you could imagine that like there was this little budding field that thought that you should do psychology the way David Hume did psychology, not by running right. experiments, but by observing and writing and and um, and making arguments, and that that was actually well. Much of clinical psychology, much of traditional clinical psychology, was that like you know right. everything from Freud and on. Yeah, um, right, 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 like Freud, and that that maybe even if you aren't a Freudian and you don't think that maybe that is a better way of approaching something as complex as the human mind and human behavior than the current methods that you're locked I think into. I think your analogy is actually apt. I think that one of the things that people don't seem to get is something that I try to really emphasize in my intro psych course is that there are psychology is such a big discipline that there are clearly different levels of analyses that might matter. So suppose I want to know if you, Tamler, are going to go to the grocery store tomorrow. Right. Right. Um, now, I could measure your brain activity when I say the word grocery store. Yeah. Right. And you could I could publish in Nature and say, like, with some, you know, 20 percent chance, uh, 20 percent greater than chance, I've predicted whether or not Tamler's going to go to the grocery store. I could ask you. Right. And and you say yes. And all of a sudden, my prediction goes up to 90%. And people somehow think that um, that the appropriate way to understand psychology is to look at the brain. And uh, I think that that's a mistake. I think that if you want to understand um, memory, you ask memory, you, you, give them, you give memory tasks. And sometimes you learn about the brain um, if you then use your memory tasks to, and then put people you know, in some imaging machine. And you can learn a lot about where where in the brain the memory processes work, but you can't do shit unless you've already done those experiments with memory. Now, if you want to learn about um, about intentions and about you know people's personality, you you measure at the level of personality and and some you know you could do developmental studies, you can ask really basic questions, you, but you're at that level. And I think that when you want to predict the behavior of groups, entire groups, um, and you get into things like sociology and political science, that's the level at which you should study it because. I don't think just aggregating individual behavior is going to give you much useful information about how a group acts. And maybe you could pop up even another level that at the quantitative, like there is something meaningfully true about some claims that are not quantitative in, in, right. in certain fields that would give you something like a satisfying explanation. 
Because I don't think that aggregating the behavior of cells is any useful explanation for why you go to the grocery store. Of course, it's caused by your cells. Like, that would be ridiculous to deny. But, like, is that really (laughs) the most useful, like, explanation? It's interesting because now that I'm thinking of that analogy, I was thinking you have similar kind of divides in anthropology, right? And in sociology, although there aren't as many quantitatively focused sociologists. But but there's definitely a divide, like a fundamental divide in terms of how they think that their own field should be approached. And I don't know, do you have that at all? I guess like with evolutionary psychologists versus. Uh, yeah, it's actually it's it's frustrating because I, I think that it, in fact, many people do believe that um, I, uh, that, for instance, that we we haven't explained something unless we explain it at the level of the brain. Right. Um, and and I, <laughs> right. I find that sort of puzzling. Um, it's like, you know, I always try to tell them like you, you can understand quantum mechanics is not going to help you understand how to play pool. Like it's, I mean, it's obvious that we're, our behavior is caused by brains, right. but I don't know that that's the most fruitful way to, to understand behavior. But this um, is also so think, generated by public interest. Like, you know, I love this meditation podcast that I sometimes listen to, but he often refers to like, when you meditate, it actually changes your brain. Like yeah. you become calmer and less stressed and less prone to overreaction. And that actually reflects in your brain. So it's like, yeah, like, well, of course it does. <laughs> like, so, how so could it not? How could your brain just stay completely the same? And that your would entire personality is that changed. would be a finding. That would we be a finding. We put people in an MRI and we, you know, stabbed their feet. No change in their brain state. I mean, they this goes back to pain. the Molly Crockett thing, but that's what gets people all. That's what you know. They get they get wet or they get hard when they yeah. hear that something about that something also is occurring in the brain. Yeah. And, and I, there are probably many reasons for this, but I think that people think that, oh, now that we know that, that it's physical instantiation, we can do something about it. And, and that's, that's, I think, just a misunderstanding, right? That's, there's some, in some cases you can, right? But in many cases, it's much easier to do at a behavioral level, right? Like it's much easier to, to use um, uh, like systematic desensitization to get a, to get rid of a phobia, even if we know that the amygdala is firing during your fear experience, right? Um, it just, right, yeah. But this, <laughs> I, I I actually think that the the increase in media attention that we've gotten in the past, say, 15, 20 years, has done has damaged our field to the point where we've had to pick up. It's sort of caused the crisis, and we've had to pick it up. And I wish sometimes that we just did not get the media attention and that we were just systematically trying to figure these things out as nerds in a laboratory, you know, without have, without all of the pressure of giving, you know, sexy findings. Cause I but think then, that's you know, your job might not exist, right? Like then it, it's true, but you know, then, well, my job, you'll like, go back to being a hip hop producer. then. <laughs> exactly. I feel like I can make at least 10 bucks a day. I could be like a philosopher. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> see, see how it is to try to live at at a philosopher's salary. Nobody has any illusions about like what philosophers can do for the world and what you know. No, yeah. I, but I buy. I believe that your book will change the world. Oh, that's true. You're, but, you're forthcoming. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, and it, it will change the world primarily in that it will make you rich. I, I hope so. I think that would be definitely one good thing that could come of it. But really, I'm just <laughs> about finding truth and <laughs> lone voice in the wilderness. All right. Have you defended psychology enough to your satisfaction? I feel I feel like I have. I feel like, like I feel like we could probably, you know, have uh, entire other episodes about it. But this but, was a uh, much more yeah. respectful and like. I know it's like we couldn't it's a, it's it's a little bit hard to get too angry at the fields that we have like actually been right. systematically discussing with passion for like this like you know and that like gives us like our careers and like yeah our way of life I I want to uh to um also I I gave a shout out um some of the people who had given me helped me prepare for this but um there's a a podcast called the Black Goat Podcast that is uh, Samin Vizier and Sanjay Srivastava and Alexa Tullet. They, among other things, discuss the these kinds of issues. It's a fairly new podcast, but check it out. I also listened to a podcast in preparation for this with your boy Brian Nosek. Um, oh yeah, he was a guest, and the podcast is called "Fuck." I'm forgetting. Do you know what I'm talking? It'd be about? great. No, but it'd be great if it was called "Fuck." I'm forgetting. Fuck, I'm forgetting. <laughs> uh, no, it is. You are not so smart. Oh, yeah. You are not so smart. It. it is a popular podcast. I've seen it, you know, kind of cuddling You've next to ours on those top lists. <laughs> All right. So see you next time. Or do we see them? <laughs> no, we, no, we never see them. Yeah. They just hear us. You'll hear us next time. You'll hear us next time. Join us next. There, that's the word. Join us next time on Gary Devlin.